Welcome to America's Defense Communities, the podcast. Today, we will be covering defense policy. The 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, also known as the NDAA, is filled with many provisions that have affected and will affect communities adjacent to bases. In today's episode, we talk about the trends and outlooks from this year's NDAA, other relevant defense policy, and the discussions taking place on Capitol Hill. Later, Randy Ford will provide some updates from our communities. This conversation was recorded at the Defense Communities National Summit March 6, right before the administration released its budget proposal. It features thought leaders from the press, think tanks, and lobbying firms, and was moderated by Matt Boron, ADC's executive director. With me, I've got four really important and knowledgeable experts uh, that are going to help us unpack defense policy and budget issues that are going to drive Congress and DOD this year. So immediately to my left, Mackenzie Eaglin, senior analyst at the American Enterprise Institute. Then we have Matt Herman, senior advisor with the Roosevelt Group. Then Todd Harrison, senior director with Metria Insights. And by the way, first time I saw it, I thought you went to work for Meta. And so I was like, <laughs> Todd went to work yep. for Facebook. That's weird. <laughs> and next to him, we have Karen Jowers with Military Times, senior editor. So we'll just jump right in. Is the government going to shut down or, or what? <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll be bold and get this started. And, uh, you know, there's gonna there's already been a lot of talk about the defense budget this year. And a lot of that revolves around the debt ceiling increase that needs to occur in the next, uh, what is it, about two months or so. Um, but I think a lot of that focuses on a budget resolution versus an actual talk of appropriations. And there's going to be a lot of politics that goes in uh, into the debt ceiling discussion. At the end of the day, I think the likelihood of a government shutdown at the end of this year as what I would term political theater is is more likely now than it ever has been. I think it will happen because I think the speaker is going to have to make some very difficult decisions and the outlet is going to be giving the Freedom Caucus or elements of his Freedom Caucus the ability to shut the government down, to say they halted the Biden administration's progress on things. How that gets resolved, we could spend hours and hours figuring that out. But I do think the politics right now of volatility make it more likely that you will have, you know, have a government shutdown at the end of the year and you compile that, all the concern that's going to come from the discussion over the budget proposal that will be worked out here, at least in the House, over the next couple of months. So I think that's something that, from a defense community standpoint, I know folks have brought this up a lot. It's a concern because you get workforces that aren't going, going to work. It oftentimes happens around the holidays, which makes things even extra special. So I, you know, I hope it doesn't happen, but I think given the politics, it's an increased likelihood. Todd, you look like you want to take this one too. Yeah, no, and I think everything you say is completely plausible. I worry, though, that we may hit the crisis point earlier than the start of the fiscal year, and the crisis point being the debt ceiling, right? And we're not going to know the exact timing for when we run out of all that, you know, the Treasury calls it extraordinary measures, when we're actually going to hit the debt ceiling. We're going to have a better uh, idea of that come May, after all our taxes are due (laughs) April 15th. uh, Then the Treasury gets an inflush of cash, and they'll be able to better calculate when they're actually going to run out of cash and out of the ability uh, to borrow. The timing, you know, it's a big window right now. You know, CBO says sometime between uh, July and September, but the 
they'll be able to narrow that down after May. But at some point, you know, the clock is ticking. That moment will come. It will come before the start uh, of the fiscal year in all likelihood, uh, unless the economy is going gangbusters and maybe people overpay their taxes. I don't know. Um, but when that happens, I am worried uh, that we don't reach a deal that Congress doesn't reach a deal to somehow suspend or raise the debt ceiling, and we hit that wall, and then we go into the unknown era of what happens if we are not able to make good on all of our obligations as a federal government. There are you know, many ways that that could play out in terms of slowing down payments, prioritizing payments. No matter how you cut it, it's going to be incredibly disruptive to the entire economy, not just defense. I'm worried that's when we hit the crisis point. And if we do, then that has to get resolved. That cannot go on for very long. Uh, and then the way that gets resolved may well resolve the appropriations for FY20, right? They, as part of that, they may come out with a deal uh, on appropriations for FY24, maybe beyond. We'll see. Hopefully, we don't get something like the Budget Control Act uh, that we got out of the same kind of standoff over the debt ceiling back in 2011. But we can't rule it out as a possibility at this point. So government shutdown may be possible, but you know, I worry that before that, we may have a debt ceiling debacle on our hands that causes kind of a, you know, a, a coming to Jesus moment, if you will, in Washington, and people realizing like, okay, we got we to gotta do something. We got to resolve this for the foreseeable future. Well, let, let's say, assuming it gets resolved, what does the defense budget end, end up looking like? I think, I think the, the dynamics on the defense budget are very similar to the way they have been the last couple of years, where the administration will come in with a proposal, I, you know, I think, uh, as these two have talked about in, in their reports and in the press, it'll be an increase over last year over some amount, but that won't be enough for some of the Republicans, and they'll want to increase it. Democrats will want parity in, in domestic programs. So I think you see an increase in defense spending. What that number is and what it looks like is all a part of a ton of dynamics that are going to play out over the next you know, five or six months. But I think you're going to continue to see increased defense budgets, even for folks on the far left, uh, the, the threat that China and certainly that Russia poses with Ukraine, it's not a theoretical thing anymore. I think it's a lot more tangible for folks, not everybody, but a lot of folks. So there's general agreement on it. It really becomes a question about where do those investments go. But I don't think the dynamics, uh, even though we have a change in the House, I don't think the political dynamics have shifted enough to change what the budget ultimately looks like for defense. Todd, go ahead. I was gonna. I was gonna see what McKinsey oh. had to say. I want to. <laughs> I think that's. I think that's well said. Um, Chairman Reed on Senate Armed Services has already said. You know, that's where the votes are in in the Senate and on his committee. It's to continue to do what they've been doing, which is um, boost the defense budget above inflation and meaning to account for more adequately for inflation. One and two, to bolster deterrence in the Taiwan scenario specifically. And of course, it's, things are complicated by Ukraine and the challenges there. And now Congress wants to make sure that you know that Taiwan doesn't slip down the priority list as a result of very large war in Eastern Europe. And so increases will continue. And, and I also agree, even on the House side, that's where the votes are. It's not about, I mean, we hear from a vocal minority. They tend to have the microphone. But where the votes actually are are more along the lines of what you saw in the um, 
China Select Committee hearings, right? There's a bipartisan consensus of what the challenge is, and it's to deter the Chinese Communist Party from using force to take over the island of Taiwan and capture it as its own. And of course, use of force could be, acts of war can range from blockade and quarantine all the way to invasion. And Congress is worried about all three. And so they'll continue to do what they have been doing, which is growth above the request and growth above inflation. Well, let's, Karen, this one is for you. I mean, let's con- uh, assume that even if there's modest growth and it's above inflation, uh, you've termed uh, a new term I just uh, learned, budget dust. <laughs> As DOD talks about quality of life, the importance of supporting service members and their families, often those are the programs that are the first to uh, be cut. What have you seen this past year and what do you expect next year? Well, you and the defense community understand what military families go through. And you know how important military pay, military allowances are because they spend the money in your communities. They rent the houses in your communities. Now in the, but there's also childcare, spouse employment. You hire the spouses in your communities. You, um, you have a lot of childcare providers in your community. So the question is, if there are cuts, what's going to be cut? Is it going to be death by a thousand cuts with you know, a lot of programs just getting downgraded? In the past six months, basically, we've seen the Secretary of Defense implement a pretty wide-ranging program for the people. And part of that was a commissary plus up so that it would decrease, it would actually increase the savings for folks by three to five percent, increasing their, the customer savings by hopefully 25 percent. Congress last year added 14 child care centers to the Defense Department's request of two. So that's 16 child care centers that they added and that's really kind of amazing compared to the last number of years where there's maybe one or two. So it remains to be seen how the, what, what the budget's gonna do to military families. You understand that, uh, and there, there are things that you might not even think of. There's moving companies in your community. Moving companies have a great effect on the quality of life of military families. Because in, over the past several years, there have been problems with moves in some areas for some families. D- um, the U.S. Transportation Command has, is in the process of implementing a new system for moving military families. And part of that is they're going to be the, the new contractor is going to be discussing with moving companies, many of whom are already moving military families, to sign them up for the new program. So these folks who pack and load and truck military family stuff is going to be move, is they're going to be they're in your community. Um, let me see what else. Oh, the the child care. One thing that you probably are aware of is the child care fee assistance 
in the military communities. If a family can't get adequate childcare, if there's no space on the installation, there's a program where they can get a subsidy in the community with a civilian provider who is vetted by DOD. And so w whether that money is gonna be available, um, but those civilian providers, the child care centers, the family care providers are in your communities. So um, I'm telling you what you probably already know, but that's where DOD intersects. And I've seen in the, in the past number of years, I've seen more of DOD funding things that can help spouses, children, that work with the, the civilian communities. For instance, the DOD schools have a, have a grant program where they provide grants to schools outside the, the gate to help families, um, to help the schools, help improve the schools for all the students. The, there's a career accelerator program that started in January and DOD pays spouses, but this program pairs up spouses with fellowships, with employers who want to participate. And the spouse is paid by DOD, and hopefully at the end of that, about 12 weeks, that company is gonna be hiring spouses. So if, you're, if there are companies in your community that may be interested, but don't necessarily know about it, um, you can help get the word out about that. Thanks, Karen. Mackenzie, you had yeah, something. Just wanted to, to go back in time. I, those, that's all excellent points by Karen about the many different ways to support service members and through also in the community. But last year, Congress really their attention was wrapped when um, when it was noted that you know the Army had put out a memo <clears throat> telling soldiers coping with inflation, you know, to you know if you need to seek food stamp assistance, then you should do that, and that really upset members on defense committees of jurisdiction. Not because they didn't realize it was that bad, but because it's just. It just doesn't feel, it doesn't sit well with them. So there is actually gonna be a big push on the House side this year in um, the authorization committee for enlisted basic pay reform. Now, Karen talked about a lot of the, uh, like more of the deferred and in-kind benefits and this is just pay table reform and the chairman has characterized it as, quote, very expensive. Hmm. Now, so the question isn't whether they're gonna do it, it's when do you get a bill and if the Senate will go along because nobody knows when 24's uh, appropriations will be enacted. I certainly don't but this is a this is a growing cause of concern for members and you know there's 20 give or take 25 percent of enlisted service members are food insecure and Congress is very alert and they want to spend money to, to address some of the problems so you know my next question was going to be what are the sticking points of the NDAA coming up but first you know Mackenzie you said something on this stage last year that stuck with me you said there was an increasing momentum for a divorce between the Republican Party and the military mm -hmm. has the election changed uh, what over the past year and if so you know how and how is that going to influence this year's NDAA 
It's a long-term breakup. <laughs> uh, that was the term. That was the, yeah, okay. <laughs> what, what, is, what do they say on Facebook? It's complicated, the status, the relationship status. Um, for, and you could, but you can see some of it at play right now in the Republican Party where there are, there are members who um, are very actively focused on where they can cut defense dollars. Um, every committee of jurisdiction on the House side has been ordered to submit a table of savings with their marks. So Chairman Rogers has to do it, hack, the appropriators have to do it, and they are looking to, to uh, identify programs and priorities to, as I heard from one Hill staffer, shoot in the head, and they're gonna do that. And that's reflective of a wing of this group that wants to do that. Then there's where I talked about earlier, the vote where the votes still are, which is that we're not deterring Beijing, and we're falling behind more and more every day, and some problems you can attempt to buy your way out of, and that they, they believe strongly that, that this is still one of them. And that's where the majority of the members are, but, you know, when you when the hearings start and you're going to hear, I mean, um, uh, the ranking member on armed services on the Senate side last week, his floor speech was on, you know, basically, I hate this term, but wokeism in the military. And so, and he's, you know, I think he would consider himself a patriot and a staunch supporter. He's called for 5% of GDP for defense. And yet, you can see the, it's complicated status. <laughs> Let's get some discussion on this. Todd, what do you think? Yeah, the, the, the topic of savings, I think, is going to be a big one this year uh, in the NDAA and in appropriations. But since the NDAA does so much more, you know, in terms of hearings and oversight and digging into the budget, I think that's where we'll see a, a lot of the discussion. Um, I think they're going to have to do some throat clearing about wokeism and whatever else they think they're going to save money on. They're going to have to talk about it to placate certain elements uh, of the Republican base. Uh, but there's no money there. <laughs> and, and they know that. And if they don't know that, they will quickly realize that. Uh, there's no line item in the budget for woke. Um, you know, like, let's be serious, people. <laughs> so, you know, what are they really going to go after? If there's anything in the budget where there's broad consensus that it is wasteful or inefficient or should otherwise be eliminated, it would have already been eliminated, right? There's, you know, and, and if something like that is in there, it's probably minuscule uh, and not going to turn the needle at all. So really what you get into very quickly are debates over, okay, well, what is the most efficient, what is the most effective, where there's not broad consensus. Uh, and, and it could get into things like, you know, different elements of military compensation, different elements of, you know, morale, welfare, and support programs, uh, recreation programs. You could get into all of that. You know, maybe people want to talk about the commissaries again. That's, that's big money in the budget, $1.2 a year in the commissary side. Subsidy. People want to debate that, maybe. But these are things that are politically difficult where there's not broad consensus. And so, you know, they can debate that all they want, but I don't think the table of savings is going to add up to that much. And the things that they might count in there are things that they were probably going to stop funding anyway. You know, so that's the way these efficiency initiatives tend to go, unless you have a major forcing function like a budget deal that requires a significant cut in the defense budget. That's when people start, you know, actually implementing some of these things. And even then, you know, it's a lot easier to just cut back on quantities of weapon systems and things like that, uh, and then think that you're going to make it up in future years. 
along the discussion about savings, I do think from a community perspective, the things to watch for are, uh, Chairman Calvert mentioned this, that one of the savings potentially comes from not filling open government uh, service positions. So not necessarily eliminating, but not filling. That's a concern, right? Because I know at local installation levels, oftentimes that community liaison person, either you know, either the position doesn't exist, or if it does, they haven't filled it, or the person is, is moving in and out. The second one that I think has a direct impact on communities is what we used to call climate resilience, which now DOD, through some secret memo, is calling just resilience. Uh, but those are things that Republicans like to target if they are forced, uh, as others have mentioned here, to find savings. Those are programs they're going to go after. Now, there is broader, I think, more broad support for resilience programs than there was 10, 15, 20 years ago. But still, uh, you know, those become low-hanging fruit, easy targets. It doesn't get you the savings they're really, I think, ultimately going to look for. But you brought up something that was uh, interesting. Um, and if they do want to tackle pay reform, uh, one of the challenging things, and I, I think it was Paul Archangeli that said this, if you increase the TRICARE pharmacy copay by a buck, it created some multi-billions of dollars that the committee could play with to pay for things. But that's politically difficult. I mean, not that a dollar is going to, I mean, it does impact people, but I don't know if it significantly impacts folks. But are they going to get to a point where they can do that? Probably not. So it's going to be interesting to see. I do think things that communities care about become easy targets, low-hanging fruit. So some of, I think, what you uh, ought to be doing when you're here in D.C. this week is reiterating some of those programs and the support you have for them. So it may makes that decision that much harder uh, and not just an afterthought for them as, as they have those sort of discussions. Karen, on the ground, you report a lot of on the ground types of programs and activities. Uh, are you getting a sense that there is also this tension uh, that is playing on quality of life programs that is influenced by, as Mackenzie puts it, the complicated relationship uh, between the Republican Party and, and DOD? I, th uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm hearing different things. Um, families are, when, when family advocates hear, you know, budget cuts, it's, okay, we're the first to go. The, the family programs, maybe not the first to go, but degraded. Um, but Congress, at least the um, some of the folks, some of the lawmakers that I've heard in hearings so far, are questioning DoD leaders about the effect on reversing the the budget to the 22 level, for example. So. It's complicated. Yeah. yeah, it's complicated. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, McKenzie brings up the food insecurity. Todd brings up the commissaries. And there's, I mean, the reason that the secretary actually plussed up the budget mm -hmm. was so they could reduce the prices for service members for food insecurity. So that'll be an interesting discussion. But you have to wonder, is that the most effective way to do that, right? Would it not be you know, more efficient, more effective to give a targeted increase in the basic allowance of, uh, for subsistence to people of certain ranks or with certain number of dependents, right? Rather than this broad subsidy that, quite frankly, 
primarily benefits military retirees and their families, right? That's, that's who's <laughs> benefiting the most from the commissaries. Um, you know, the younger enlisted folks tend to not value that benefit as much. Uh, and with more and more folks living off base rather than on base, that also, you know, creates another disincentive to using it. So, you know, I would be hopeful that if Congress wants to, you know, get efficient but maintain benefits and take care of the troops, that they actually target benefits to those that need it, not to those who don't need it. So we've been talking a lot about budget and how some of the programs we're discussing are budget dust and wouldn't make a hill of beans if they were cut. So what's on the table in terms of big ticket items? Or is anything? Well, are you talking about the NDAA or probes? Or? Sure. <laughs> All the above, okay. You, you were, I think one of your earlier questions was gonna be what are some of the big issues that are gonna be out there? A couple that I, that I think I'm tracking. There's likely to be a discussion um, on the need for a second engine or money for the development of a second engine now with the F-35 program. Both sides are gearing up for it. Understanding is the budget probably doesn't have the money, or oh, we'll see what OMB does with it, but is not likely to have that funding. Regardless, it's gonna be a point of discussion how contentious it is, we shall see. But I think that's an issue that's certainly gonna be out there for the committees to look at um, this coming year. That, that will be a rather significant one. But also, I have to ask, what does all this have to do with recruiting and retention when it comes to military personnel and quality of life programs? I think Congress is gonna pay attention to that. And I think that's one of the areas that, it's not that people are wanting to cut it, but it is getting reduced, is in strength. And we saw that this past year with the Army not being able to make their in strength numbers. I think that's going to, you know, carry forward. And you know, while it was not necessarily a deliberate effort to downsize the army, um, that is the result uh, that we're seeing is a downsizing. And I'm not sure exactly how they get that back. I mean, we are in this weird economic environment where you know it looks like we're teetering on the edge of a recession. We've got high inflation, but unemployment is at the lowest level since I think 1969. That makes it tough for recruiting, right? But I would say recruiting and the challenges across the services, and they're differing by each service. Some have retention problems, which is tomorrow's recruiting crisis. And some have actual recruiting challenges, like the Army. When the Army was wiped out, the equivalent of six brigade combat teams by not making end strength last year. Its leaders are terrified, and Congress is thinking, Karen, about that question. What do we do, and how does that affect, you know, how can we help to not make this problem any worse, and ideally to help the services make it better? Well, uh, I think we're close to running out of time. So I'll, I'll follow up with everyone's favorite topic. You know, there, there's been rumors, and, and uh, the Heritage Foundation once again made their call for BRAC in their latest report a few months back. Uh, and there has been whispers that DOD could make another request. Uh, I know that it's uh, maybe unlikely in, in both Congress and in DOD to, to do this, but what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, you could have chalked me up as being someone a year, about a year ago, making the assumption, knowing that Senator Inhofe was retiring, that the department had an opportunity and would seek out a BRAC. That said, you would expect by now we would be hearing a rumors, discussion about it. I have not heard that, or maybe I'm just totally missing out, but 
I, I don't think you're going to see the department do that. I don't think they're as vested in a BRAC. And, and I say this is, you know, we don't have an assistant secretary in the installation position that is super focused on infrastructure or installations. They definitely have a focus on energy. So I don't think you have that champion within the department right now that's constantly you know, yapping at someone saying, we need a BRAC, we need a BRAC, we need a BRAC. So I don't think we're going to see one. You know, I think we will eventually see one. The, the politics of this have shifted a little bit. Uh, that said, when you put it in the context of a rising China and everything that's happening in Ukraine, I think members, even if they don't have the historical scars from 05 or, or even what happened in the Trump administration, still kind of question the general logic of it. So even if the department asks for one, Count me as one that's kind of dubious that the Hill is going to sign off on a BRAC anytime soon at this point. Yeah, I'm not sure if they remember how to spell BRAC uh, <laughs> anymore. It's been so long. But, you know, the good rule of thumb is the best time to do a BRAC is always five years ago, because then you could actually be through it and be reaping some savings and handing over facilities to communities. You could be at the, the nice part of it, not the really ugly part of it. So, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's going to happen this year. I just don't think the politics is there, I, I, at least in the foreseeable future. They've got bigger fish to fry, like the debt ceiling. All right, they got they got to reach a, a consensus on things like that before they can even try something that is really a heavy lift, like BRAC. In terms of the administration requesting it, um, you know, I'm not hearing anything either. But you know, maybe they're just doing a good job. Uh, quiet. <laughs> yeah, info security, I guess. Uh, but DoD keeps secrets really well, too. <laughs> yes. But you know, there, there's just different end up at ways golf courses these days. There's different types of BRAC proposals, right? So they've done it many times. DoD has requested a BRAC in the budget. Um, it's not often that it's serious, though, right? Where they actually go to the Hill, they bring, you know, the military. They pound the table, say we really need a BRAC. More often than not, what they do is they write it into the budget, and it's in there. And, you know, it's one of the talking points on the <laughs> list, and then they move on, right? And they know, you know, if they hit it too hard, Congress is going to hit them back. Um, so if it is included, I suspect it will be the latter type, where you know it is included, it's a talking point, and they move off it pretty quickly. But from a community perspective, even if there isn't a BRAC request, and even if there isn't a push. Uh, organically on the Hill. Now is the time to be working with your installations to address your concerns. Because uh, at some point this is going to come up again and much better that you're working towards addressing problems now versus rushing when you're told there's going to be a BRAC. That's never a good outcome. So you might have a little bit of a leeway here to address those issues. That's certainly what we've encouraged all our communities to be doing. It's just not a priority for this Pentagon team, civilian leadership, so there's not going to be a request for the next two years. However, uh, what you do see happening is, uh, it, it's small and it's one-off, but there is the starvation approach that's well underway. We see it in the Marine Corps, we see it with certain MTFs where you know commanders realize some of their excess capacity, they're not gonna put money into it. Mm. And you can, you can close facilities and bases by default. And the, for example, just look no further than the Commandant for how to do that. And so eventually I do think that will concern Congress enough to have a serious conversation about base closures, but not for another several years. Do we have time? I can't even see the clock. Are we done? <laughs> um, real quick, you know, this is always a doom and gloom panel, I feel like. But <laughs> what is, uh, you know, we talk about, but uh, what is one thing you're actually excited about that you think 
this Congress, this administration, and this short a period of time can actually accomplish. Uh, I'll kick it off. I, I would coin it, uh, the Asia-Pacific rebalance or pivot, whatever you want to call it, is real. Um, you know, you had the reactivation of Marine Corps base Blas out in Guam, thanks to former Congresswoman Madeleine Bordayo mostly. Uh, getting that started, uh, count me as one that many times thought it wasn't going to happen. There's going to be an announcement on the AUKUS deal here um, in a couple of weeks. I think um, there are some real tangible things that are happening in the Pacific. Um, and why does it matter to communities? AUKUS has the potential uh, for advanced technology to really benefit companies and communities that are willing to partner or maybe already kind of partnering in that space. Uh, so I think there's some goodness there. I think it is real. They're putting resources and energy behind. Yeah, I mean, two seconds. seconds. I, I think the you know what is encouraging is that we now see that there's a strong bipartisan consensus about the core of our national defense strategy, which is China as the pacing threat. I think that it, that is a really strong bipartisan, enduring consensus. Even if you look within each party, even within the, the you know different factions of each party, there's consensus around China. Mm -hmm. Karen? Just two seconds. So Matt's comment about reaching out to your installations earlier is right on target. I know you guys have done that. You've evolved a lot since the 2005 BRAC, I think it was, 2005. And the leaders in the past who have said, you better be paying attention to spouse employment opportunities in your area your child care opportunities and your schools in your area when we think about basing decisions. So uh, you guys have been doing some stuff in that regard. I've seen it, but he makes a good point about reaching out. I just say, I, I'm, every time I go to the Hill, I'm optimistic. Congress is listening. They're trying to help. Not everything is parochial and political, and particularly when it comes to national security. So I, I agree with all of the points that have been made. And you know, it's, it's a time when you can get attention and, and get needs met if you just have those conversations and tell those stories to, to your members. Please uh, give a round to my, the 16 panel. I'm Randy Ford, the editor of ADC's daily newsletter on base. Here are some of the stories that have been going on in our communities. The Navy has selected four developers to move to the next round to lead major renovations at Naval Information Warfare Systems Command in San Diego. The Navy expects to pick a firm by the end of the year to start work on NAVWAR's 70 acres. Back in 2021, when the Navy's Red Hill fuel storage facility leaked fuel into the water supply at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam in Hawaii, many military families were forced off the base to live in temporary housing, including hotels. The government reimbursed them, but they were surprised to get tax papers, saying the reimbursements would be taxed as income. The IRS has now decided it will not tax them for the lodging payments because it was an emergency. And DOD's Readiness and Environmental Protection Integration Program, that's REPI, has released its first ever guide for communities on installation resilience funding opportunities from inside and outside the federal government. 
It has information from 25 different funding sources, including key dates like when grant applications are due for each one. You can find it on repi.mil or follow the link from our site. For more news, check out our stories at defensecommunities.org. You can also sign up there for our daily newsletter on base. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to America's Defense Communities, the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you interested in sponsoring the podcast? Please go to defensecommunities.org for more information.